Early in the evening, in spring of 1939, a mysterious aircraft in distress circled Misku Island before crash landing in a bog. When a local villager investigated, he found a bright red Soviet Air Force bomber and two Russian pilots pointing guns at him. Within hours, the entire world's attention was focused on New Brunswick. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. The village priest, Father Ernest Chiasson, later recalled the appearance of the massive aircraft over the town of 1,200 people. It was twilight. The plane circled the church as if trying to find a place to land. It flew a bit further. Finally, a motor died, and we heard the sound of a crash. Then silence. Before the crash, 34-year-old Soviet Brigadier General Vladimir Kokonaki and his navigator, Major Mikhail Gordonenko, were fighting for their lives, piloting the giant red bomber. Vladimir was a world-famous test pilot who would break 22 world records. He was described by the newspapers as charming and youthful, with a radiant smile. If he was mentioned at all, Mikhail was typically described as husky with thinning hair. Soviet plane had encountered bad weather and had gotten lost hours before. Their equipment, including their compass and radio, had frozen. They were running out of oxygen and were dangerously short on fuel. Vladimir passed out from a lack of oxygen and the husky navigator, Mikhail, had taken the controls. When a mysterious island appeared, Mikhail had no idea where it was, but he knew the crash landing there was their only chance to survive. As far as crash landings go, it was a successful one, with relatively little damage done to the Ilyushin DB-3 Soviet Air Force bomber. While Mikhail was unscratched, Vladimir had broken several ribs. The two emerged from their aircraft into a dark and forbidding wasteland. What had looked like a field from the air was actually a bog. Local villager Laurence Viber was the first to reach the mysterious bright red airplane. The Soviet airmen, stuck in a bog with no idea where they were, promptly drew their revolvers and aimed at him. Viber could not speak Russian, and the Russians could not speak French or English. But deciding that the villager was not a threat, the injured pilot unfolded a large map and showed him where they came from. 23 hours and 36 minutes before they crashed, they had departed from Moscow with great fanfare. Thousands of people had gathered to wave and cheer them as they left for New York City. The flight was to be part of the Soviet Union's contribution to the World's Fair. It was going to be a record-breaking flight that would be the first to fly from Russia to North America, and it was also going to be the fastest transcontinental flight ever. The pilot made clear to the villager that they were staying with their plane. The bear decided to go and get them food. When he got home, his wife told him that some young woman had called 
asking about a crashed airplane. There was only one phone line in the area. Phone calls had to be manually connected by the operators who were based in Bathurst. The two phone operators were Jeanette Newton and her teenage sister Antonine Robichaud, who everyone called Tony. Decades later, Tony would recall. At 8.50 on a Friday evening, the phone rang. It would be the first of several calls that would keep us on alert and without sleep until Sunday afternoon at 5. At the time in that region, the telephone centre was really a news and information centre. They were asking if we'd heard that a plane had crashed on the island. The pilots had radioed Moscow that they were in distress before crashing. Soviet officials in New York City, Toronto, Boston, and Montreal were already frantically searching for the plane. Tony managed to get in contact with Laurence Viber and learned There were two pilots that spoke neither English nor French, and one appeared to be injured. She later recalled the two sisters piecing things together. We had read in the paper about a proposed Russian flight but had paid little attention. We gave Laurence the names of the Russian aviators that we had gotten from the newspaper. Laurence wrote them down and returned to the crash site. He showed the pilot standing guard the paper, which said Kokinaki, and he pointed to his injured comrade lying on a makeshift bed near the plane. At 2.30 in the morning, Cyril Merzero was woken up by a phone call from the Toronto Star, Canada's largest newspaper. Merzero, who was the editor of a little weekly Bathurst newspaper called The Northern Light, was told that he had the story of a lifetime on his hands if only he could get there first. However, reporters from New York City and Boston were already flying up to Miscou Island to break the story. He woke up A.C. Cormier, his newspaper's photographer, and Joe Roy, a local taxi driver. Being a small town, even at 2.30 a.m., word spread, and he was also joined by Victor Archer and Harold Branch, mostly because they didn't want to miss out on the excitement. Merzero also woke up the one person he knew who could speak Russian, Mo Digo, an aging immigrant from the then-extinct Austro-Hungarian Empire. He had learned some Russian back when he fought against the then-extinct Russian Empire in the First World War. Despite not having spoken Russian in 20 years, he reluctantly joined. Half an hour later, they all set out in two cars on muddy, rutted, dirt roads. Mercero would later write in an article headlined, A Hectic Trip. After only 30 minutes on the road, both cars were mired in an almost impassable portion of the Salmon Beach Road and were released only after an hour's pushing and shoving. To make matters worse, at 4am they got a flat tire. Then it turned out they didn't have the tools with them to actually change the tire. Another hour was wasted as the second car drove off to find a wrench. At 5.30 in the morning, they stopped in Karaket, where a farmer prepared them breakfast. They made it to ship again at 7, when, Mercero wrote, We learned to our dismay that instead of the plane being 5 miles as we thought, it was 25 miles distant. They also had to cross a mile-wide harbour filled with fast-flowing water and ice, with no ferry. 
had a loss, the expedition called the two phone operator sisters. Jeanette Newton quickly called back with good news. She had found a small flat bottom boat to take them across, and also a young boy who would row them. The telephone operator sisters informed the little expedition of the sheer scale of global attention that was now directed towards New Brunswick. Reporters from New York City and Boston had been flying through the night. RCMP had a team on their way, and Russian officials from all over were coming. Curious hangers-on were also on their way, including one of the wealthiest and most famous men in the world, Harold Sterling Vanderbilt. The wealthy American playboy's massive private plane had already departed New York City with a team of some of the finest doctors in America. Cyril Merzero, the writer, A.C. Cormier, the photographer, and Mo Digo, the reluctant interpreter, were now alone, having left the rest behind as they all couldn't fit in the little boat. We felt like turning back, Merzero wrote as they disembarked the rowboat. An expanse of ice met our eyes. Shell ice, puddles, slush, and air holes were gingerly skirted, and sighs of relief were audibly expressed when terra firma was attained. An airplane roared overhead. The American reporters had arrived. Feeling discouraged, the three men were met by a priest with a horse and a wagon. The telephone operating sisters had called the village priest, Father Chiasson, and asked him to take the expedition the remaining seven miles to the crash site. Up over drifts and down muddy hills we went, wrote Merzero. All the while, planes were roaring overhead, and we thought all of our trouble was in vain. As they drew closer, they spotted the crashed plane, but it became too marshy for the horse and wagon to continue. The three men and the priest hurried through the cold, wet, muddy marsh towards the stricken plane. As they drew closer, they spotted the two Russian pilots. The reporters from New York and Boston had taken photos from the air and had flown back to their cities, not stopping to aid the pilots. Vanderbilt's massive luxury plane, filled with fine doctors and celebrity friends, found that it was unable to land, and the nearest place with a suitable airport was Moncton. The little expedition from Bathurst had beaten the world to the scene after all. Modigo, the interpreter who hadn't spoken Russian in 20 years, approached the injured pilot and said, Welcome, sir. Brigadier General Vladimir Kokonaki, an ardent communist whose meteoric rise to global fame was all the more remarkable because he only had a grade 3 education, snapped back, To hell with sir. In Russia there is no distinction. We are all comrades. Father Chiasson later recalled their interaction being tense, but for other reasons. Modigo was supposed to be the interpreter, but didn't speak very good Russian. The pilot asked him where they were, and he responded in Misku. The pilot appeared frustrated and said, I know we came from Moscow. I want to know where we are now. Mo reassured him, saying, That's true. You departed from Moscow and landed in Misku. Mo Digo recalled the Russians being very courteous, although not very talkative. They apparently were only concerned to get to New York 
and move their plane somewhere safe for repairs. Merzero wrote, it was not until Modigo used his persuasive power that Gordonenko consented to walk the two miles to the telephone. Vladimir later stated that the only reason he left the plan was because the Canadians would go with him and that it was the only way to get them to stop smoking around the plane, which was leaking gasoline. Major Gordonenko? Da, da! The other end of the line responded, and then launched into a lengthy statement in Russian. Tony patiently waited until he had finished speaking, and then replied, Um, can you perhaps spell that out for me? The two sisters would spend the day painstakingly recording, letter by letter, messages from the Russian government in Moscow, and passing them to the pilots in Misku. In between dealing with the Russians, they were also fielding calls from the Toronto Star, who was practically in hysterics at the idea that the New York papers would break the story before them. The Russians would strip the sensitive parts off of their plane and fly to Moncton. They would go onwards to New York City, where thousands of cheering fans greeted them. A waiting message from Stalin congratulated them. The little team from the Northern Lights' treacherous expedition became a minor news sensation itself, and was published by big city newspapers in the cosmopolitan metropolises of the world. Readers were astonished at what they'd gone through, seeming like relics of a past time when information didn't move as quickly. The two sisters, who'd been operating the phones the whole time, finally turned in for some much-needed rest, but were awoken by yet another telephone call. It was the Toronto Star, offering them an all-expenses-paid trip to Toronto as thanks for all their help. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.